0: Hello and welcome to Socialism. The Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Today we're going to be discussing the events of Afghanistan over the course of the last few weeks, but also looking back at uh, what's taken place over the course of 20 years of war, occupation, and Western imperialism, and the devastating consequences of the working class and poor both in Afghanistan and across the world, but also going a bit further back than that and looking at the history of struggle in Afghanistan and why the situation has developed in the way it has and what way forward associates do we put forward for the working class of the poor for the region and internationally? For the struggle for the liberation of the Afghani working class and a struggle for a socialist world. My name is Lenny Shao, and today joining me is Niall Holland from the Secretariat of the CWI, the Committee for Workers International, the international organization the Socialist Party is part of. It's a fascinating discussion, and hopefully, you'll be able to learn lots, but also be intrigued enough to find out more and think about if you're not already joining the struggle for socialism. But hope you enjoy this one. It's a really good discussion with Niall and I'm sure you're going to learn loads. Hello and welcome to Socialism, the podcast from the Socialist Party. I'm here today with normal Holland from the International Secretariat of the Committee for a Workers International, the international organisation, of Socialist Party, that uh, is part of. And we're going to be talking about the momentous events that are taking place over the course of the last week in Afghanistan, where we've seen scenes reminiscent of the fall of Saigon in the 1970s, where, in the space of a few days, the Taliban has retaken Kabul the Americans, British fleeing on planes, helicopters doing their best to escape the Taliban as they took back control of Kabul after 20 years of deaths of the brutality of Western imperialism taking place in Afghanistan. And of course, the ramifications of that are very important for socialists and the working class internationally and most importantly in Afghanistan itself. So we're just going to be talking over what's taking place and what we think are socialists key tasks and programs that needs putting forward for the working class and poor in the region also the international ramifications of that. So I think just to start, now, can you just run over what's taken place for the course of the last week and what does it really represent? Yeah, well, I think
1: it's an unmitigated disaster from the point of view of the Western powers, particularly American imperialism, and we should call it by its real name. It's not a, you know international community of, of nations. It's imperialist nations that invaded Afghanistan 20 years ago and have now had to leave with none of their main objectives met and the country in a complete mess and ruins. And we see the desperate pictures of people at the airport in Kabul trying to escape, people climbing onto the side of airplanes, terrible pictures of people dropping from the planes and dying. And really, you know, what we've seen is a routing, not just of the national Afghan army, but also really of the powers that were there. I mean, as you said, it's very similar. It's got lots of similarities with Saigon in the 1970s. I've seen one commentator saying, if anything, it's even more like the British routing in Afghanistan in the 19th century when, you know, an army of 20,000 were driven from Kabul and were picked off afterwards by tribal oppositionists until one man apparently (laughs) was left alive. It's almost at that level of really a routing of those forces. And I think people internationally are understandably you know, very alarmed about what may come of this. And we'll obviously discuss this in more detail. Could this lead to a surge of Islamic terror, including in the West? What about the rights of women and young people and the people as a whole inside Afghanistan now that the Taliban seem to have taken power again? And from the point of view of the imperial powers, I think that the biggest factor for them is that the idea of a unipolar world where American imperialism rules and can impose their will wherever they want through military action, that notion has gone. And we see now that they're moving out of the region. Other powers will you know, step into the vacuum to some degree. And we're now dealing with a much more fractured, volatile situation. And certainly the people who pay the price for this are the masses, the working class and the poor of Afghanistan. And, you know, that's why it's correct for us in the Socialist Party in Britain and in the Committee for Workers Internationally to oppose this war from the very beginning, 20 years ago. And we warned it could become like a new quagmire, a new Vietnam, a new long, unwinnable war by the West. And that's exactly what's taken place.
0: Fantastic. Cheers. I mean, it's interesting. People might have saw Joe Biden's speech, Mm. which was it would be almost funny if it wasn't so tragic in terms of what's actually taken place in the region. But like you say, it represents a huge sort of blow to American imperialism. And there's lots of talk about the role of China others in the region. Mm. What does it represent in terms of US and British imperialism internationally on the world stage, both economically, politically and in the region going forward?
1: Well, it's a real setback for them because the war on terror, so-called, was used really as a pretext to invade Afghanistan and for the Western powers to try and carry through long-term policies they had or aims of reordering things in that part of the world in their interests, for their class interests. I mean, 9-11 was a terrible crime against people in New York and other places. Thousands died, and we condemned it completely at the time and we said Al-Qaeda was a completely reactionary organisation that no workers could support. But, of course, that terrible crime was used by the West, by the Bush administration, by Tony Blair here at the time, so-called new Labour government, to launch an invasion of Afghanistan. Now, it's true that Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan and in that sense were being hosted by the Taliban, but Al-Qaeda's main support backing in reality were some of the Gulf states, such as Saudi Arabia, which of course are close client regimes of the West and were never invaded. They invaded Afghanistan for own geostrategic reasons and had this opportunity to do it because of the collapse of the Stalinist regimes a few years beforehand, which just altered the world balance of forces. And it meant that America could go into somewhere like Afghanistan, which would have been unthinkable during the Cold War. So they were able to go in there and really, you know, flush with triumph or the sense of triumph after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They thought that with even hundreds of thousands of troops, that with the -the state-of-the-art technology, military weaponry, that they could go into a country, a poor country, impose their will, conduct so-called nation-building in the way that they wanted it. And all this is just now in tatters. And, you know, not only is this a military defeat, for the West. It's also an ideological defeat on many levels as well. And I think where does this leave the West? Well, there's a lot of recriminations at the moment. I mean, a lot of the NATO powers are pointing the finger at the United States and Biden and Trump, who started the process of disengagement from Afghanistan and saying that the Americans have acted unilaterally, that they shouldn't, you know, have acted the way they did. You know, they point to some factors which are true that Biden decided to pull out during the so-called fighting season in Afghanistan, when it was easier for the Taliban, not during the winter season, and also that they took away air control or air power to back up the national Afghan army, so making them almost you know powerless in the face of the Taliban. All that's true, but the reality is that the puppet regimes that have existed in Afghanistan for years had lost all shred of credibility that ever existed. The national Afghan army it was completely riddled with corruption, with graft, with, you know, all sorts... of you know, stories that like half of it didn't exist. Uh, ghost, just, <laughs> the, the ghost soldiers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that The so-called 300,000, you know, numbers of soldiers was much less than that because they didn't exist, many of them. I mean, there was reports during the fighting that some of the soldiers were in a semi-starved condition, hadn't been paid for many weeks. Why on earth would they fight and die for a corrupt central cabal government that was notoriously corrupt from the very start? I mean, some of the generals, there's a general who can't remember his name, but he colonel, sorry, an advisor to generals in Afghanistan over the last period of time. And he said that from the very start, the Kabul government from 2001 onwards that was imposed on the people by the West was endemically corrupt. And, you know, all the institutions that ran were also corrupt and therefore hated by the people over a period of time. We should also remember, of course, it wasn't just corruption. It was at times a very brutal government where many people were arrested without trial, detained for years, tortured. Bagram Air Base was notorious for its jailing yeah. and its torturing of many people, including many innocent civilians. So all this built up over a long period of time, and it just meant that there was no depth of support for that regime. And I think, just to get back to your question, that means now that it's very difficult for the Western powers, particularly the United States, to project itself as a leader of a coalition of forces that will go in and supposedly solve problems in different parts of the world and put troops on the ground. That's very difficult Having said that, of course, it doesn't mean American imperialism and American military power just goes overnight. There's still dozens, if not hundreds, of American military bases around the world. They can use air power, including very sophisticated drones, as well as B-52 bombers. They can use client states against different regimes that oppose their will. And it's even been reported actually in the last week or two that a new military base has been constructed in, I think, Kuwait which will be used to intervene in Afghanistan if needs be. There's going to be over 2,500 American troops in that base. They're not talking about a new invasion, and some of the backwards men in the Tory ranks want that, but they're not going to do that. But what they could do is carry out airstrikes. And we've seen what airstrikes mean in the past in countries like Afghanistan, it means blowing up weapons, it means attacking innocent civilians. So bloody interventions by the West into Afghanistan haven't stopped, but the so-called model of going in under the false flag of, you know, humanitarianism or liberalism and supposedly creating these modern and democratic states. All that propaganda has just gone up in flames and has massively undermined the imperialist powers, the Western powers, in the eyes not just of the masses in Afghanistan and across the region, but internationally as well.
0: Interesting. I mean... You touched on there now. I think, obviously, the role of American imperialism. You touched on a bit in terms of just how quickly the Afghan army collapsed. I mean, maybe it's only a few weeks ago where the Americans, I think, gave the Afghan army 15 minutes notice before they quickly flew off. Didn't they put, like, timers on the lights so they didn't know they were leaving? But it's 20 years of bloodshed, but yet the Taliban took control so quickly. I mean, only a few weeks ago, even a week ago, Biden said, oh, there's months before they can take mm. it. I think maybe you could just touch on how did they just take control back so quickly, but also I think it's maybe important if we just touch on who are the Taliban, what do Mm. they represent? Because there's many on the left who almost have an approach of anything anti-American is good. I mean, they've made mistakes in the past. Many on the left, including the USA, supported the Mujahideen in the 1980s, which obviously Taliban, al-Qaeda sort of emerged from. Many on the left have got themselves in problems in terms of both back 20 years ago after 9-11 in almost critical support, or even Mm. support for the Taliban, anything anti-American. But of course, the socialists, we don't support the Taliban. They're a horrendous organisation, a right-wing organisation. Maybe just touch on
1: just how come they took control so quickly? Who Mm. are they and what do they sort of Mm. represent? Yeah, well, the Taliban, I think, were founded in 1994. And, you know, as you say, that they originated from amongst fighters, who were backed by the CIA and backed by the Pakistan regime at that time to be used against the client Soviet regime in Afghanistan. And, of course, Soviet troops had gone into Afghanistan in, in 1978 1979, and it was the West that mobilised what became known as the Mujahideen. And amongst some of those fighters, repeatedly went on to become the Taliban. Once the Soviet forces withdrew, and after a number of years of fighting and a real brutalization of society... We saw then that the different warlords turned on each other and there was years of civil war and Kabul was just like a sort of encircled regime and there was terrible civil war all around it. And it was around that period in 1994 that the Taliban emerged and it was a small circle, really, of some fighters, of ex-Mujahideen fighters. It was based on some of the religious Islamic schools and really the attraction at that stage to the Taliban was that they posed themselves as being uncorrupt that they would bring law and order and security. And by doing so, they would adhere to a very strict definition of Islam. And that but a certain attraction to layers of desperate people who just wanted an end to war and to corruption and to the rule of the warlords. And eventually it led to the Taliban growing and being able to seize power in 1996. And when they came to power, they showed what their rule really meant because you know they brought in this terrible version of Sharia law where, for example, alleged thieves had their hands cut off, where women could be stoned for so-called adultery, where women, of course, were not allowed to go to schools, have further education, really have any sort of public life, were forced to wear the burqa. Very reactionary laws were introduced. And, of course, that was oppressive against the working class and the rural workers as well. And this sort of rule is something that no socialist should be given a scintilla of support to. The fact that they then come up against Western imperialism doesn't mean that there's anything progressive whatsoever about the Taliban. And really, the West was prepared to live with the Taliban for a period. What changed was 9-11, and then the fact that Al-Qaeda and some of its key leaders were based in Afghanistan. But as I said previously, it wasn't mainly a military operation to get rid of Al-Qaeda. The West was absolutely determined, led by the U.S., to not just get rid of Al-Qaeda, but to get rid of the Taliban regime. Now that they had the opportunity, they had the perfect pretext to intervene. We should remember at that time, over 90% of Americans supported the war. Going into Afghanistan, that massively declined over the next two decades on the basis, as we'd said at the time, it would do so. Once the body bags started coming home and people saw that it was a long drawn out process, a long drawn out war that was unwinnable, that the mood would change and that's what happened. It was that mood change actually over a decade or so at least, that Biden has hoped to lean on to see him through this situation. But, you know, the American withdrawal has been such a debacle that opinion polls now show that the majority of people think he's made a mess of the withdrawal. They don't agree with it, including 40% of Democrats. So he has been impacted by that. We have to see if it has any impact in the midterm elections in 2022. That's some way off. Domestic issues could play more than Afghanistan by that time. But if Afghanistan continues to be seen as a real problem, that can chip away at the support for Biden. So foreign international issues can have an effect on some domestic elections. But just back to the Taliban, I mean, so they came to power as a reactionary outfit. They were overthrown by American imperialism. But then whenever, you know, the Kabul regimes, the puppet regimes were put in power by the West, there was a modicum of, you know, improvement of the rights of women and girls at school. You know, but overall, they created a bit of an economy around the green zone, which is the massive fortified area of American operations, the so-called coalition. Apart from that, the situation just deteriorated for most people. One example is the heroin trade. Yeah. The Taliban were strict about dealing with the poppy growth and so on. Since they've been overthrown over 20 years, Afghanistan now is estimated to supply 90% of the world's heroin. And uh, I read so somewhere, somewhere increase increased massively increased and i've read i think the figure is something one in ten young afghan people is a heroin addict so it's terrible it's just ripped through the whole of society and by the way it's quite rife amongst the national afghan army as well as well as taliban infiltration in their ranks so that's the type of state forces that were created so-called under the different puppet regimes and the taliban have only been able to make a return because the situation's so bad and people are so desperate. But I'd say it doesn't reflect a deep and widespread support for the Taliban. I think they've been able to make this lightning win, take on big swathes of the country, partly because they'd learned from the past and from a strategic point of view, they were more clever. But they were even surprised themselves. One of the leading spokespeople said they didn't expect to be in Kabul so quickly. But for all the reasons I've given, the Afghan army just collapsed in front of them. A lot of Afghan troops just went over to the Taliban side. The Taliban also made deals with the local warlords. The warlords were not prepared to stand beside the government and fight against the Taliban. But you know that process, I think, also shows the Taliban, they haven't got a very strongly consolidated position. They're sort of finding their way at the present time. They're trying to you know consolidate their deals with the warlords, with different ethnic leaders. And one important thing we should remember is that Afghanistan is very difficult for anybody to rule. It's a very diverse society. There's a number of different ethnic groups. The Taliban are mainly based on the Pashtun, but the Pashtun aren't a majority. They're about 48% of the population. There's also Uzbeks and other big minorities inside the country. And the Taliban probably know that to rule in the longer term, they're going to have to have some working relationship with these different elements, different ethnic leaders and so on. So, you know, the question, of course, now people are raising, is the Taliban changed? We saw the press conference that one of their moderate leaders gave a couple of days ago, where he promised that there wouldn't be attacks against women, that women would have all their rights. Although he does very ominously qualify that by saying within their strict interpretation of Islam, they also say that we're not going to allow Afghanistan to be used as a launching pad for terror attacks against the West, and that's obviously to placate the West. And they make other promises that they're becoming a much more moderate force, Now the thing is a lot of that can be just window dressing, a lot of it can be propaganda and we really have to see them by their deeds, how they rule but even having said that if they were to in inverted commas moderate their rule it still would be a deeply reactionary regime, one that no socialist could give any support to because it's by its definition it's still going to be anti-women, anti-working class, anti-young people and even if they succeed in forming what they've talked about an inclusive wider government, well what does that mean? They're talking about involving some of the former presidents of Afghanistan under the Western occupation. But these people are completely corrupt as well. What did they do to seriously enhance women's rights right across Afghanistan? So it would just be a completely opportunistic link up between these different disparate elements. But it's not ruled out that the Taliban will go down that direction because they know themselves. They don't have universal support. They came to power quite quicker than they thought. So it's going to be hard to consolidate And they don't want to get into a direct collision with the West at the present time. And it may mean that they're prepared to make concessions, at least for a period, until they've consolidated their rule. We just have to see. The alternative, of course, is that they push ahead with a very hardline regime and just ignore all the opposition. And in a certain way, you could argue, well, they've had such an overwhelming victory. Couldn't they just do that? They could possibly do that. But the danger there is that the opposition that does exist, particularly among some of the warlords and ethnic groups, could grow. And you could have new clashes and you could have a new civil war developing and that will be looming that will be yeah. looming in their consciousness as well so they're finding their way at the present time just as the west which has been humiliated and defeated is also trying to find a new working relationship with the taliban that's,
0: that's fascinating i mean you touch on a lot of points that are really important i think how sociists view things because far too many people almost take a too simplistic position either anything anti-american is good and not trying to take in all the different factors in the situation i mean it'd just be interesting Obviously, started in the aftermath of 9-11, and you, I think you touched on it a second ago. But what position did Socialists take then in terms of the invasion? And you touched on some of the warnings you gave. Maybe just go over that, if that's all right.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, people remember the anti-war movement over Iraq, and it yeah. was enormous. I was on the demonstration of over a million people in London, but there were similar enormous demonstrations in most cities across Europe, big cities at that time. The mood was very strong. But that had come after two or three years, of course, of the experience of what the war in Afghanistan had meant and the invasion. But at the time, as far as Afghanistan was concerned, there was a very strong anti-war movement. But society was much more polarized, I think, from what I remember, than it was during the Iraq war. In a certain sense, you know, we had to stand against the stream a bit, because it was just if you remember, it was the aftermath of 9-11. Emotions were very raw, understandably. Many people were angry, not just in the United States, people were fearful. Of attacks against them you know terror attacks and the arguments of the west that you know this comes from al-qaeda they're based in this country we're demanding the taliban give them up if they don't we're going to have to attack you know a lot of people thought well it's awful but maybe this is the way to solve yeah. this you know nip it in the bud now and of course we had to argue at the time that it wasn't about that it wasn't a genuine so-called war against terror that this was old-fashioned american and western imperialism and neo-colonialism And they saw the opportunity to move into Central Asia and to impose their will, something they couldn't have done for decades because of the Cold War. What they had forgotten about, of course, is the great game of the 19th century when many powers had jostled over Afghanistan because it's such an important geostrategic area. And, you know, as many commentators have said, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires and America was to find that out, you know. But at the time, it wasn't clear cut for lots of people. So we had to very boldly argue those points, You know, very understanding of the mood over 9-11. It was a mistake. It would be a huge mistake for the workers' movement to give any scintilla of support of going towards an imperialist war because it would just be a disaster for everybody concerned. And at the time, of course, we had the new Labour government of Tony Blair, which was a (laughs) gun-ho supporter of that war. You may remember, you know, the images of Blair and Bush cozying up. You know, it was really unseemly at the time, obscene, really. You know, given it was people's lives that they were going to destroy, and the mass media, generally speaking, coming in in also in a very bellicose manner, supporting that war. So we were part of the anti-war movement. We initiated protests, including school strikes in different countries against the war. We initiated broader anti-war movements. We took part in the broader anti-war movements, but I think within that broad anti-war movement and amongst the left, what marked us out was that we tried to take a class analysis and a class position on it. It's not enough to be sort of moralistically outraged by war and pacifist about it or just say, this is terrible, we shouldn't have bloodshed. Of course, we don't want the bloodshed, but you have to explain to workers why a war like that would actually be against their interests as well and to say that we need to link up with the working class and the poor of places like Afghanistan So they can resist the Taliban's, they can resist the warlords, and we fight here against our you know own reactionary governments, and that was a reactionary government, the new Labour government, dragging Britain and other countries into this terrible conflict. So that was our position at the time. And it got a very strong echo. And we brought that position into the trade unions, we brought it into the wider workers' movement where we could, and we got an echo on that. And I think the fact that we had a clear class analysis stands up. If people go back and read our written material at the time and also look at the leaflets and other general material we did, I think it stands up well and it shows we are correct and the warnings we give were borne out as well.
0: No, completely. I remember I was 11 years old at the time and it's probably the war that I've seen start and live out. I remember that sort of mood beginning to change. Like you say, at the time, there was a feeling amongst good people that mm. like, hatred at the Taliban and we need to do something. But like you say, is over time, even after a few years when the body bags started coming back. I remember there was a council estate in Coventry where two or three lads got killed within the space for a few weeks. And that just caused utter outrage and people realizing, and that was several years after, what the hell are we doing mm. in this war? Yeah, so I think, like you say, I think all of the material we produced, which I think we'll try and link in on the podcast mm. link, just to show that skillful approach of posing the war, but also supporting the movements against the Taliban by ordinary Afghan working class and poor. I mean, just in terms of the present situation, mm. what perspectives are there? What does these current events mean for the working class and poor in the region? And mm. as socialists, what do we put forward in terms of the current situation? I mean, already America's sending more troops back. I think there's more there now than there was mm. a few months ago. What do we put forward and what way forward, what programmes should socialists be arguing for in terms of the working class and poor in the region?
1: Mm. Well, obviously, for the people of Afghanistan, it, it is. And from the outside, it just looks like an absolutely desperate situation, I mean, you can imagine the terror a lot of people must feel, at the thought of the Taliban, even in their so-called moderate guise, taking power again, how desperate it must be, even though the great majority will also be relieved to see the back of the Western powers from their country. So it is a bleak situation for many workers in the current situation. And in the region, of course, it'll lead to a lot of worry and tensions. I mean, some of the local powers, it's a double-edged sword for them. Pakistan, it's a big boon for them because the Pakistan Intelligence Service's have had links with the Taliban, very close links. They harboured their leaders for years and helped fund them, of course, in the 1980s. It's a big gain for Pakistan that America has been driven out and the Taliban have come back to power. But on the other hand, there's the Pakistan Taliban, the TPP, which is in collision course with the government of Imran Khan. And there's been conflict between the forces, the Pakistan army and the TPP, and it'll be a huge boost for them the fact that the Taliban are in power in Afghanistan, and who knows where that could develop, particularly as you know, Pakistan referred to be one commentator as the world's largest soon-to-be-failed state and one with nuclear arms. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see it concentrates the minds also of Western strategists, what's going on there. Similarly with China, I mean, for China and Russia, again, regional powers, it's a big advantage that America's no longer there on their borders with American troops. It means they can increase their influence. China is keen to give money, huge amounts of money, to rebuild the shattered infrastructure in Afghanistan. They're probably funnel that through Pakistan. They hosted Taliban leaders just about a month ago. So obviously they knew something was in the air. On the other hand, they are very worried because they've got their own Uyghur minority. And similarly, Russia has successionist Islamic minorities. So the gains by the Taliban can be an impetus to those. And even if the Taliban restrain themselves and pull back and don't you know, because they want to try and have relations with the West at the present time on those local powers, the fact that they're in power, it is an impetus to Islamic groups throughout the region. So it's a very mixed situation for those countries, but that means it's a very fraught situation for workers in all of those countries going ahead. And I think, you know, from our point of view, the point of view of socialists, we have to do all we can internationally to aid the working class, recover itself in Afghanistan I mean, I think it's very interesting the demonstrations that have taken place in Afghanistan in several cities over the last few days. They seem to be mainly around what's called Independence Day, and I think it's based on the British forces being forced to leave in 1919. And the interesting thing is a lot of people were on the streets protesting, and clearly it was anti-Taliban, yeah, yeah. and they had Afghan flags, and the reason I think they were holding them was to make a point that they were not going to be you know, living under the Taliban flag, which has now been replacing lots of Afghan flags on public buildings. Now, we don't know really the social content of those protests. We don't know if there's any sort of political forces involved in them, even if there is, and even if there's quite reactionary forces involved in it. I think also there would be genuine people who are angry and quite courageous and prepared to stand up against the Taliban at this stage. And it's those sorts of events, if they're genuine that we should be given support to. I think the Taliban also, by the way, have another problem. I mean, Kabul's not the Kabul of 1996. When they went into Kabul in 96, the place was depopulated. It was a shell after years of conflict. There was barely no running water or electricity. Despite all the huge problems, they've gone into a city that's nearly 5 million people. It's a bustling city. There's a bigger middle class. There are more educated people. It's also got massive social inequalities with huge impoverished areas and more middle-class areas. But it's just a more complicated terrain for them to rule over. And, you know, that's not surprising in a sense, therefore, the protests have taken place. But not just in Kabul, and other cities as well. So we just have to see how they develop, if they do develop or not at this stage. But I think it's a little glimmer of hope and it shows what's possible. But, of course, from our point of view, what we've always said is that the working class of Afghanistan, as elsewhere, as everywhere... They need their own organisations. They need their own independent organisations, independent of the warlords, of the Taliban, of Western powers and meddling local powers. They need their own mass organisations that stand in working-class policies and socialist policies. And, of course, some people may say, well, that's a bit utopian, you know, <laughs> look at the situation. But we'd say, look what's happened under the basis of capitalism. What a nightmare it's been for the last 30 years of wars, of civil wars, of occupations of extremely reactionary governments and puppet governments. I mean, there's no future under that. And therefore, the working class in Afghanistan, you know, will find its way, we think, we're confident, will find its way towards creating its own mass organisations. And, you know, the working class and the poor of Afghanistan, like anywhere, on the basis of capitalism, even if it's ruled by something like the Taliban, the Taliban aren't anti-capitalist. And it means that workers in that country, you know, by dint by the fact that they are workers and they're exploited by bosses... They're forced to combine together, they're forced to organise together, and that can find expression in the workplace, and they can be mixed workplaces, different ethnic groups, amongst the rural workers, and that can be a way of beginning to fight back and create their own organisations. So, you know, as Marxists, we're always hopeful, we're always optimistic, not in a false way. It is a terrible situation, but on the other hand, you know, there's always hope, and I think those protests over the last few days, disorientated as they may be politically and so on, they do hopefully signify that there's people prepared to resist, and I think you know a socialist international have to give full support to that and organize within the region as well, of course, to give full support to the Afghan people resisting all the tyranny that they face. Brilliant, no, thanks. I think, was it? It's a famous thing, Marvin Trotsky said, Marx is always the most
0: realistic but also the most optimistic, yeah. And <laughs> I think that, that point is really important, I think, particularly given the events of the last week. I mean, any final comments? No, I don't think no, so. No, no, brilliant, no, really, <laughs> no. I think you said it all. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening today. Socialism, the podcast, is produced by the Socialist Party, the England Wales section of the Committee for Workers' International. Today we heard from Niall Mulholland, from the Secretariat of the Committee for Workers International. My name is Annie Shale and this episode was edited by Nick Hart. You'll be able to find out more of some of the ideas, some of the points, some of the articles that Niall referenced in the notes in your podcast app and I urge and encourage you to go and do so. Some fascinating material going back many years in terms of how Soj predicted the consequence of this, but also what we said in 2001, even going further back than that. To the Soviet invasion and around that sort of time that sort of paints a picture and puts a bit of background to how Afghanistan has ended up the way it is today, but also, as I said before, points a way forward for socialists and for the working class of poor the region. If you want to get in touch and find out more, email socialismpodcast socialism podcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast and the socialist party as a whole, we only rely on funding from our members and supporters. We have no big business backers or adverts. You probably noticed that in this podcast, but this allows us to maintain our political independence. And if you're interested in maybe helping fund this podcast, you can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. And even more important, if you have been intrigued, interested, and agree with the ideas of the socialist party that Niall has put forward today and that we've discussed, You should get in touch. Find out more about how you can become a member and join the fight for socialism across the world. You can apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. And if you live outside England and Wales and are still interested in fighting for socialism wherever you are, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. I hope you enjoyed listening this week and see you back next time.